Hello and welcome to The Course. I'm your host today, Lee, and I'm speaking with clinical professor of managerial psychology, Linda Ginzel, from the Booth School of Business. She's a lifelong educator who specializes in negotiation skills, managerial psychology, leadership, and executive development. Professor Ginzel is here to talk to us about her career path and how she became a University of Chicago professor. Can we start by getting a sense of your career path? So how did you begin your career from undergrad all the way to becoming a professor at the University of Chicago? Oh, my goodness. Let's see. Undergrad. I started at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. It's a commuter college. And I then moved to Denver, to the University of Colorado at Denver, the branch there. And I was a biology major. My first biology class midterm was 50 frogs with pins and different organs. And then I went to my first psychology class and I fell in love with psychology. I was just blown away. I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe what I was learning. It was amazing. And then when I found out that like people got paid to do research and that that was a job, that was it for me. I just decided that, you know, I'm going to get a PhD. I'm going to do experimental social psychology. I'm going to get paid to do something that's just completely amazing. So that was undergrad. And then I applied very broadly. I was incredibly lucky to have the opportunity to work with Ned Jones at Princeton in experimental psychology. He was my academic father, amazingly great man, great human being. And I ended up being the first Princeton psychologist to apply for and take a job in a business school. And uh, that was 1989. Two, two business schools advertised for social psycho- well, for psychologists, Columbia and Stanford. And I applied to both schools and I only applied to both schools. So I applied to no social, traditional social psychology programs. I'll tell you, my husband, who I met at Princeton, he applied to 40 jobs. I applied to two. And the reason is that I decided that if I didn't get a job at a business school, I wasn't actually going to do academia. And the reason is that I believed that going to a business school, I would have more of an opportunity to make a difference with people who would put into practice the knowledge that they would learn in my classroom. I wanted social, I saw the value of social psychology for management, for the public. And I wanted to teach people who would go to work the next day and put into practice the lessons of social psychology. So I had this very practical bent about action. And so my first job, I took the job at Stanford. My husband wanted to be in New York and go to Columbia, to go to Columbia, but I ended up taking the job at Stanford. And this is a dual career thing. My husband didn't get any of those jobs he applied to. So he went to Stanford and did a postdoc. But six months after we started at Stanford, he got his dream job at the University of Chicago. And so the way I ended up at the University of Chicago is uh, I followed my husband. I'm the trailing spouse. And when I went to quit my job at Stanford, there's a professor, a friend of mine, Jeff Pfeffer. He's an amazing, he's emeritus now, but I went, I told him, you know, Jeff, I really, it's a great job and I really appreciate all the opportunities you've given me, but I'm going to go to Chicago because I don't want to commute. We want to have our life and start a family. And Jeff Pfeffer said to me, you know, Linda, 
it's a lot easier to find a good man than a good job. And I looked at him and I said, Jeff, you clearly have never had to find a good man because you are so wrong. It is so much easier to find a good job than a good man. But I found both. I ended up at the University of Chicago. I taught at Kellogg for a couple of years. And Harry Davis offered me a job as a teacher. I went off tenure track and uh, became a full-time educator in 1992. And I have never looked back. I have the best job on the planet. That's my story. Tell me about what it is that you teach at the University of Chicago. So we're talking about social psychology and how it applies to business, but it sounds like specifically at the managerial level. So what do I teach? I teach social psychology, which, by the way, is the most important discipline for executives, well, for people. And I always tell people, if you don't believe me, then ask the behavioral economists, because what is behavioral economics? It is social psychology done by economists. That's actually, I mean, I say it a bit tongue in cheek, but that's actually the truth. And good for them, good for economists that they've just, good for behavioral economists that they've discovered the value of social psychology. So I mentioned that I went to, I took my first job in a business school because I wanted to make knowledge relevant. I wanted people to use the knowledge to put it into practice. So what I try to do is to help people to understand the sort of fundamental basics of human behavior, of interpersonal dynamics, interpersonal perception, and to use knowledge from experimental social psychology, which is an empirical science. So we actually have a lot of data on the causes of behavior. So that's what's so that's why experiments are the gold standard in in research or in scholarship because with an experiment you can actually say x caused y not x covaried with y or x is related with y but actually x caused y experiments are incredibly valuable for understanding why people do what they do not just that they do it but why what are the what are the what's the causal locus or what what are the what's the impetus for the behavior or the action So that's one thing. Now, the other thing that's very important about my discipline, social psychology, is that it's all about the power of the situation. So if you think about, well, two kinds of psychology, there's clinical therapy and research psychology. I have no training in clinical psychology. And I always tell my students to remember that as the year goes on or the week goes by or whatever, because everybody always comes up to me and says, oh, Linda, I just, you know, I have this crazy boss or this crazy neighbor or this crazy relative. And I just tell my students that I can only help with normal neurotics. And that's actually a term that I created. You won't find it if you Google it or anything, but normal neurotics are people like you and me. We have relatively high sense of self, high self-esteem. And we go around trying to maintain or enhance our sense of self. It's actually called self-verification. We don't want to have a view of ourselves that is discrepant from what other people think of us. And so, for example, if you were clinically depressed, you would seek out people who have the same low opinion of you, assuming that we are not, that we are, you know, normal neurotics. This desire to maintain or enhance the sense of self drives a lot of the heuristics, the biases, the predictable ways that we go about making decisions and the basis for our behavior. So that's basically what I teach. I teach the power of the environment, the power of the situation, how I, I, so there's a fake equation, right? We're at the University of Chicago, especially at the Booth Business School, where econ is, you know, in the seats people are sitting in, it's in the air they breathe, it's in the water they drink. So every once in a while, I'll make a fake equation. 
just a fake equation so people feel comfortable that all is right with the world, that they are, you know, <laughs> at Booth at the University of Chicago and there's an equation on the board. That's a bit tongue in cheek if I didn't come across clear enough that I'm trying to be humorous. So the equation is this behavior is a function of the person and the situation. That is the lesson of social psychology. Now, a lot of times we go around acting like behavior is a function of the person. That's the personality psychology, right? So we say, oh, the reason Lee did what she did is because she is a, an ENTJ. She is a firstborn. She's a high sensation seeker. She's a pickle or a cucumber or whatever, you know, personality characteristic we think drives Lee's behavior. But in fact, what social psychology does is we say, what in Lee's environment contributes to her behavior? And if it's a strong environment, then more variance in your behavior is accounted for by your situation than by your personality. What we have a responsibility to do is to create strong environments that move everyone, independent of their personality, dispositions, or traits, in a more productive direction. So that's what I get to teach every day. I get to teach people how to create strong environments that change their behavior and the behavior of others in order to, I don't know, fill in, fill in the blank in order to what? To make a bigger difference, to do more good in the world, to increase productivity, to, you know, whatever is your, your goal, social psychology is a vehicle to help you to accomplish it. And it's very doable and it's my discipline. And I think it's the best discipline on the planet, just saying. Since you love being an educator, did you also always love school? Like, was that a, a, a safe place for you? Were you a good student when you were in high school? Oh, 100%. So school, so, well, first of all, it's imp probably important for you to know that I'm the first person in my, my mother never went to school, not a day in her life. She grew up in Korea during the Korean War and never had the opportunity to go to school. I didn't even realize until like I had no idea that my mother, who was the smartest person in the world, was illiterate in her own language. I had no idea that she didn't know how to read or write in Korean. And she learned in her 60s. She actually taught herself in her 60s through the Korean Bible. And then my father was the youngest of nine children who grew up on a farm in Ohio. And he only went through eighth grade. And he joined the army to get off the farm. And so my parents met in Korea, and that's where I was born. So now I've forgotten your question. Oh, school, right. So here's the point. My mother is an immigrant and never had the opportunity to go to school. And for her, I basically was living her dream to be able to go to school and to learn. And they, my parents always valued education. My dad was a little worried that nobody would want an overeducated girl like to marry her. He was always very concerned that I would never find a man who would want to marry me because I had too much education. But other than that, all the signals, all the everything about my growing up was to be a good student and that education and effort, hard work was what was going to give me a better life. So yeah, school, I was a very good student. I know that this is really like stereotypical and you're probably going to cut this. I'm Asian. And so <laughs> not that she was a tiger mom. But my mom was very, you know, like I actually got to study as a reward for doing other things. So first I would have to do my chores and then I could study. I didn't want to play piano. So first I would have to practice piano and then I could study. So it was like used as a reward for doing things that I enjoyed less. You know, speaking of your pursuit of academia, your pursuit of a PhD, that's something that your parents didn't have experience with. And it's also something that's 
really challenging. So how did they support you or how did you find the support that you needed? Well, you know, it's so interesting. I'm very independent. So I never expected anybody to pay for my school or help me to do anything. I just, you know, my parents never had that. My parents, I just didn't have that as a model that there were actually people out there that would help you or that you could go to even. So I was very, I I don't know, naive, I guess, or green. I didn't really understand how things worked, but I had a great advisor, my undergrad advisor, the late Gary Stern. He is the one who told me when I finished, he's the one I, you know, when I took the biology class and then I took psychology and fell in love with psychology, he said to me, so are you going to go to graduate school? And I said, well, yeah, I guess so. I mean, what do you do at the BA in psychology? And he said, well, what are you going to, what kind of graduate school? And I said, well, I don't know, I guess like maybe tests and measurements or or personnel psychology. And he said, why personnel psychology? And I said, well, to get a job. I mean, I could probably get a job more easily with a PhD in, in, this is like tests and measurements, right? A lot of statistics and creating databases and such. And he said, why not social psychology? And I said, what do you do with a PhD in social psychology? And he said, well, you teach and you do research. And honestly, that was the first time in my life I realized that people get paid for doing experiments and teaching. And I I honestly, I don't know who I thought was doing all that research that I was reading about in my textbook, but it didn't dawn on me that it's a job that like you get paid for doing. I was paying to learn it. And it just was a revelation for me. I I never knew any professors. I, I mean, other than my teachers, I never talked to anybody about what it meant to be a professor and was completely amazing to me that it was a job. <laughs> so I don't know if that answers your question, but probably Dr. Stern was the the most important person in, uh, in showing me the way. And then Ned Jones, my my doctoral advisor, who was an incredibly great man. Also, I owe him a, a, a debt that I will never be able to repay. He was a great man who supported me in in so many ways to try to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and was so supportive of, of my choices. So both of them are gone and I hope that I was able to let them know what they meant to me while they were still alive. That's something I always tell my students, you know, it's so important that you let people know now that they've made a difference in your life. A lot of times, you know, People who we think of as mentors, they're not always our teachers. Sometimes someone will, a small kindness that they will do or, or a piece of advice or something, and it changes our life, but we never tell them what a difference they made. And I think that this is such an important act of humanity and such an important behavior, something something that we should all do. So I'd, I'd have people listening, parents, <laughs> prospective students, I don't know, siblings, whatever, you know, think about who in your life has has made such a difference and have you thanked them? And, and, you know, there's a lot of work now in positive psychology and gratitude. And it shows that actually when we convey gratitude or when we do something for other people, we're the beneficiary of it. We're the ones who benefit so much from from this positive emotion and, and this this act of, of kindness and gratitude. So there's an a optional homework assignment for people who are listening. Why did you decide to become a professor or an academic as opposed to doing the type of work that you do in a different type of setting? So as a as a consultant or working directly within a company? So it's such an interesting question. I want to tell you that one of my mentors is the late, great Jim March. And Jim March has this, this theory of, it's called the garbage can theory of decision-making. And he used to talk about the fact that, you know, what we do 
is we connect the dots in reverse and we act like our stories have some logical linear path and that we thought about this and we did that because in you know post hoc we're telling a story that makes sense and and I will tell you I think the main reason that I ended up being a professor and not being a consultant which was actually an option for me is because of my husband because of the man I ended up marrying So what happened is this. So it's kind of a chance thing that actually, and I think there's a lot of chance in our lives that we don't think about, but I made the decision for value that was important to me, my relationships, my my husband, the man who became my husband. And so I think if we make our decisions based on our values, they lead us to places that are, that end up being good for us. So let me, let me try to tell this story a little succinctly. So I took a leave of absence from graduate school because I really, I really wanted to do something with, with the knowledge. And I really felt like experimental social psychology, you know, it's a basic science. I mean, you're, you're basically contributing to the puzzle of human behavior and I really wanted to figure out what to do with the knowledge, not just to add a puzzle piece, which I think is great. And all my best friends are figuring out the puzzle of human behavior. And I respect it in my, my husband. I respect and admire them. I really am very practical. I wanted, I wanted the knowledge. I wanted to do something with it. I want my students to do something with the knowledge to make a difference. And so I took a leave of absence from my program, my PhD program, and I went to work at Mutual of New York as a training consultant. And that's where I learned the value of social psychology for managers. That's where I learned how important social psychology is for helping executives, for for helping us to, to influence, to persuade, to grow, to motivate, to understand. And I sat there. And I designed my dissertation on letterhead stationery. Now, before this point, I didn't have an idea for a dissertation. I thought, how am I going to contribute something novel and unique to knowledge? You know, everything's been done. (laughs) I don't know how to do something creative and new and novel. And yet here I was in this environment that I started designing experiments at work. (laughs) I called my advisor, Ned Jones, and I said, Ned, I have this idea. What do you think about this? And I told him the idea. And he said, you know, Linda, ideas are cheap said, why don't you come back and do something about it? And so that's how I ended up going back and finishing my PhD is because I finally found a context that made basic knowledge interesting and important to me. And at the time I had an offer to, with a consulting company because I was working at Mutual in New York and, you know, the headhunters are call. And at the time I had a master's from Princeton and I was designing education for these, this big company and doing really well. And so this consulting company offered me a job and the president of the company had a PhD. And he's like, well, you know, you're ABD. You have all the knowledge you need. You don't need your PhD. You've got everything you need. Come and be a consultant and, you know, you're going to do great. You know, it's going to be great. And so I had to decide, was I going to go back and finish my PhD or was I going to be a consultant and make a difference that way? And the main reason I went back, two reasons, I guess. One was that my husband, he's now my husband of 33 years, but we were dating pretty seriously through through graduate school. I thought, you know, if I don't go back and finish my PhD, this relationship doesn't have a chance. He's going to finish his PhD. He's going to become a professor. I'm going to be a consultant flying all over the place and busy. And, 
and, you know, living in a different world and our relationship won't have a chance. And I also thought, you know, no one will ever be able to take away my PhD. If I finish it, I'll always have it, even if I never use it. And the fact that this guy, this um, one who was offering me the job had his PhD, I thought, you know, it's easy for him to say, you've got all the knowledge, you don't need the PhD. There was something about completing that degree and, and being able to also say I did it, that, you know, I was able to do it, I did it. And even if I never use it, no one can ever take it away from me. Those are the two reasons I went back. What are your least favorite things about this job? I really don't like dealing with student complaints about grades. I think that it makes the job feel transactional. You know, a lot of times what I try to do is say, look, we're providing feedback. The feedback is for your growth. I tell my students that my job is to help them to be wiser, younger. So you're never going to be younger than you are today, which is not a bad thing. I mean, as we age, a lot of good things happen. We could be wiser. And so how do we, how can I help you to be wiser, younger? And so almost everything I do is couched in terms of learning, in terms of like figuring out who is your future self, being really trying to think about who do I want to be and how am I getting there and how do I learn the lessons of experience so that I can be wiser, younger. So I really think that grading, complaints about grades, I don't have a lot of complaints about grades, but that's my least favorite thing is trying to deal with students who, you know, so here, I'll tell you this. I teach leadership and leadership is very bimodal. So some people think I change their life and some people think I waste their time. And you know what? They're both right. Because if you don't come to class, if you don't put anything into it, it's going to be a waste of time. If you come to my class and you're all in and you're wanting to learn and you you do the work and you you're engaged and you it's going to change your life. They're both right. So the students who think I wasted their time are often the students who want to complain about their grade. But I always say, you know, you get out of your education what you put into it. And leadership isn't, you know, we don't have equations. We don't have algorithms. It's hard. <laughs> it's easy to do math. It's hard to do what we call the soft stuff. So you have to really be present and engaged and work at it. It's not something that you just check a box and you learn anything. So I guess maybe that's my least favorite thing are students who, who, who take this topic as though it's something that can be poured into their head or they can watch as an observer and get anything out of it. Leadership is such that, you know, you have to figure out what it means to you. And of everything that I say in my class, you decide what's relevant. You decide what you take in and what you make part of who you are and who you become. And I know that might sound really like fuzzy and, and abstract, but it's really not. It's very concrete. So what would you say is the most gratifying thing about the work that you do? The most gratifying thing is when students actually tell me I've changed the way that they see the world or the way they see themselves or that they had no idea about social psychology or about how they could make such a, you know, impact in the world. And so I, I think that's the most gratifying thing. I'll tell you this, the motto of the University of Chicago is this. Now I don't, I didn't take Latin, so I don't know how to say it in Latin, but the motto is this, two parts. First part, let knowledge grow from more to more. So what is the point of growing knowledge? To own it, to possess it, to collect it, to display it. Knowledge is like butter in the hot sun. I mean, you can collect it all you want and it can just disappear. Second part of the motto of the University of Chicago. Remember, first part, let knowledge grow from more to more. Second part, so be human life enriched 
The purpose of growing knowledge is to use it to enrich human life. I don't know what you think enriches human life, but you should. You should know to what purpose you are putting this knowledge that you are growing. And this is the most gratifying thing as a teacher is when my students tell me that they are on a path to put their knowledge into practice, to create a better future, to change the world. However, they define that knowledge grow from more to more, so be human life enriched. So I feel like I'm helping them to make their dreams come true. I've been speaking with Professor Linda Ginzel. Professor, thank you for your time and course takers. If you enjoyed listening to today's interview, please check out the other ones. Leave us a comment, subscribe, follow, and share this episode with your friends and family. You can find out more about the University of Chicago through uchicago.edu or the university's campus in Hong Kong through uchicago.hk. Stay tuned for more and thanks for listening.